I just don't believe the Christian God of the Bible exists. Especially with all this evil and suffering in the world. Perhaps God is all good and he's just not all powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Or maybe he's all powerful and he's just not good enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, this this all good and this all powerful God of the Bible, clearly he doesn't exist. And listen, this is more than just a philosophical question for me. I refuse to believe in a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good and still evil goes on unchecked and unchallenged. Maybe God exists. Maybe not. But clearly, the Christian God of the Bible cannot be trusted. We're starting a new series this morning or our second part of our new series in which we are looking at this concept of Christian atheism. And one of the the reigning questions that every single person on the planet has come face to face with at one point or another is why does evil and suffering exist? Where we have a God who is omnipotent, meaning he's always present, he's omniscient, he knows all things, he is all-powerful, and yet... There is all this evil and suffering. How do we account for that? And so the title this morning is, I believe in God, but I don't think he's fair. Have you thought about that before? Have you said it out loud? Have you whispered this by yourself alone? This is the question that we're going to be wrestling with this morning. Perhaps uh, you've... you've, uh, watched a a debate on TV or on YouTube or you've talked to a non-Christian friend or family member or co-worker or neighbor who has wrestled with this, what is commonly referred to as the problem of pain or the problem of evil and suffering. And that is the question that we are going to wrestle with this morning. Why does evil exist? If I can just be personal with you for a moment, one of those moments in my life was immediately after the birth of my firstborn son, Liam. And the very first person that I called after he was born was my father. And I told him the good news. And we booked a plane ticket. And we were so excited for him to finally see his first grandson. And that ended up being the last conversation I ever had with my dad. And I recall at that time, the thing that was so difficult for me is... It felt like impeccably cruel timing, you know? Why couldn't he have died after seeing Liam for the first time? Or even died before, why then? Or the time when my best friend gave me a call and he told me that his child that was growing in his wife's womb was full term but was still born. And I asked God, why? How can, how can that be part of your plan? Why would you allow something like this to happen? And I'm sure in a, in a room of this size, we, we, we have our own stories, our own questions that we really grapple with and we wonder, God, why would you allow this kind of gratuitous evil and suffering to occur? 
This is, this is a deeply personal question. In fact, one of the, the greatest apologists of our time, known as uh, Ravi Zacharias, he was asked a question just a month ago. I just watched the video this week. He said, in your 45 years of defending the Christian life, what is the most difficult question that you have ever faced? And without a beat, he said, the most difficult question is the problem of evil and suffering. It's the question that everyone wants to know the answer to. Why, God, why? And, and I go to God's word, and I realize that there are godly men and women who have beaten me to the punch. They have asked exactly the same questions that I have asked of God as well. I think, for example, of God's servant Job in chapter 12, verse 6. He says this, The tents of evildoers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure. Kind of implicitly asking that question, why is that the case? And then later, explicitly, he does ask why, and then he curses the day of his birth. Or Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, where Jeremiah says, God, I would like to discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Or I think of God's servant David in Psalm chapter 10, and he continues in 11, 12, and 13, uh, this continuous line of questioning of God. But he says here in, in chapter 10, Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? Why do the wicked prosper? Why does evil continue to go unchecked and unchallenged? Why, God, why? We've all asked this question before. Scripture is filled with men and women who have asked this question, and we, we ourselves ask this question. And I would like to propose to you that every person on the planet who has ever lived or will ever live will ask this question. Even the most ardent of atheists will ask this question. They might even use it as the quintessential proof that either God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, he shouldn't be trusted. This is a question that each and every one of us continues to grapple with. And the question is, how do we respond? So here's the fundamental question that I want us to grapple with this morning. This is what I put in your note sheet. If God is all good and all powerful, why does he allow evil and suffering? He's all good. He's all powerful. Why does he allow evil and suffering? I recall in December of 2004, about 15 years ago, perhaps you remember this, a massive tsunami hit the, the crest of the Indian Ocean and 250,000 lives were lost, just like that. And over the course of the next weeks and months, newspaper columnists, reporters, they constantly asked this one question, where was God? And I, I'm reminded particularly of one reporter, Ron Rosenbaum of the New York Observer, and this is, this is what he wrote. If God is God, he is not good. If God is good, he is not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after events like the Indian Ocean catastrophe. And this isn't a new idea. You can go all the way back to 300 years before Jesus, in which there was a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. And he's kind of the one who, who coined this phrase. So here's the original language, 300 years before Jesus. Here's what he says. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is impotent. He's weak. 
Or is he able but not willing? Well, that's worse than he's malevolent. He is evil. Is he both able and willing? From whence then is evil? In other words, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why does he allow evil and suffering? Why does it exist? And that's a question that all of us really want the answer to. And because we're not going to be able to give this subject the the proper time and attention that it deserves, I want to give you three resources that you can take a look at at a later date. The first one is a book called Suffering. This is written by Paul David Tripp, especially for those of us who need more of a pastoral guide, how, how God chooses to sustain us in the midst of our suffering. That would be a great book. Um, Perhaps you have a a non-Christian friend who's really grappling with this issue and and, uh, debating with you, then the reason for God gives a really good theological and philosophical treatise on this subject. And then finally, a book that is entirely based on this, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. So there's three resources for you if you like to read on this further. In Lee Strobel's book, he identifies Barna Research in which exclusively Christians, just Christians, were asked one question. And here was the question. If you could ask God anything, what would you ask him? Any question at all. Like, this is pretty open-ended, right? Why is the sky blue? Why do we have five fingers and five toes? Why are we six feet tall? Could I beat Samson in an arm wrestling match? You know, like, you could ask anything at all. And you would assume that based on the open-endedness of this question, the most frequently used question would get maybe one, two percent. But the most frequently used question was more than 17 percent of all people surveyed. And what was the answer Why does evil and suffering exist? One in five Christians said that'd be the first question that I would ask God. We all wrestle with this question. So this morning, we're going to take a deep dive into this fundamental question. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those? We're in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. If you open up about three-fourths through your Bible, you're going to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one of those big books. Start turning to the right. You're going to pass Acts and then Romans. If you get to a book that ends in Ian's, you've gone a little bit too far. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 14. Here's God's word. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, which means Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, 
the redemption of our bodies. So here's Paul, and, and he knows the human heart. He is very well acquainted with suffering, and he wants to give the people of God a means of encouragement in the midst of their suffering. It's kind of helpful in knowing that we just finished our James series because Paul is writing to the same audience. The same people who, after the stoning of Stephen, who's the first martyr of the Christian faith, a great persecution breaks out, and Christians are fleeing for their lives. They've lost their homes, their workplaces. Many of them have lost family members. And so Paul wants to give them a means of encouragement in the midst of their suffering, to let them know on the front end, in this life, you will suffer. Each and every one of us, we are growing. We are waiting for God to make all things new. In fact, all of creation is groaning and waiting for Jesus to come again in glory. There's an Aramaic term that every single Christian in the first century was well acquainted with, and it was the word Maranatha, which simply meant, come soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon. That was the battle cry of Christians because they, they are experiencing all of the suffering and they longed for the day in which Christ would, would wipe away every tear from their eye and he would make all things new. And so just so that we know that this isn't an academic exercise, I want you to turn with me. Put a tab in Romans 8 and then turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. You're going to pass 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting at verse 16. Here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about the subject of suffering. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light, momentary troubles. Now let's just be honest for a second. For those of us who have endured suffering, gratuitous evil, the loss of a loved one, would you call this light, momentary trouble? Maybe, maybe there's some offense when we, we look at the apparent flipness of Paul's words with regard to our suffering. But I want you to see that Paul can put his money where his mouth is. If you turn with me, keep going to the right, we're going to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to look there, chapter 11, starting at verse 21. 11 verse 21. Paul wants to give a defense of his ministry because there's many people who are questioning his apostleship. As, as, a, as a follower of Jesus, as a purveyor of his word, people are questioning whether or not he is truly a disciple of Jesus. And in order to give a defense of his ministry, he begins to talk about everything that he has suffered in this life. Just take note of this. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, and I'm speaking like a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am even more. I have worked much harder, been prisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes was a death sentence. 
Five times he's received 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger in the rivers, in danger from Gentiles and bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. You can see a pattern here. In danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked, and beside everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Light, momentary, troubles. I don't know about you, I would call that a pretty bad life. And yet what we need to see is Paul has the perspective in the midst of his suffering to know that God is still at work in the midst of it. Even though he doesn't have the eyes to see, all he knows is that all of creation has been subject to evil and suffering since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. And to the very day, all of creation groans. We're all calling out, Maranatha, come back, Lord Jesus. And yet in the midst of his suffering, he has the perspective to see that God is still at work. That God still has work to be done. And so some of you here this morning, you might say, all right, Justin, I, I understand it conceptually. I may even get it theologically. But how do I deal with this knowing that my life has just been turned upside down and it feels like all hell has broken loose in my life and I don't know where to pick up the pieces and I keep asking why, God, you would allow something like this to happen in my life? Where do I go from here? That's the question that Paul wants to answer for us this morning. But before we get to that, before we talk about some of the, the hard truths of Scripture on account on the subject of our suffering, I want to give us just one don't on suffering. I just want to be your pastor for a second and give us one don't. And it is this. This is what I put in your note sheet. Don't try to silver lining someone's suffering. Don't try to silver lining someone's suffering. You know, one of the great beauties of being the church is that we have the opportunity to mourn with those who mourn to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are one body, many parts. We are the church, which means uh, if you're a part of a church long enough, you're going to suffer pretty quick because we carry one another's burdens. But I think one of the things that, that we can do sometimes is we, we try to silver lining another person's suffering. We, we try to come to God's defense. We, we try to fill pain and weakness with assuring words, but oftentimes it comes off as empty religious platitudes. And it's something that we need to be wary of. You know, someone, they, they receive a terminal illness, and we fill the weeping agony and silence with, with, well, you know, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. It's scriptural, but it's not timely. Or I, I've walked with enough parents of children who have lost, or parents who have lost children, and some of them have even reported to me that they've had very well-meaning friends and family members who would say things, very flip things like, well, God just needed another angel in heaven. 
These, these types of things that we say, we're trying to fill the weeping sadness with, with assuring words, but it just doesn't help. A famous author and professor by the name of Brene Brown, she once wrote this, rarely if ever does an empathic response start with the words at least. And we do it all the time, don't we? My son is struggling in school. Well, at least your daughter is an A student. I just lost my job. Well, at least you have the competent skills in order to get a better job. I think my marriage is over. Well, at least you have your kids. These are the types of things that we try to do to to reassure, but it doesn't help. And I want you to consider something. Uh, If you're still in Romans 8, look for a moment at verse 26. For those of you who have your Bibles, look at verse 26. It says there that when we are suffering, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans that are too deep for words. Meaning the Holy Spirit does not have the words to speak and so he just mourns with us. He groans with us in our agony. And interestingly enough, in verse 34, it says the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, joins the Holy Spirit on that behalf. And so you just picture this in your mind for a second. You have the creator of the universe, the second and the third person of the Trinity, and even they, in the midst of our suffering, they, they groan and they suffer with us. There's no words that are spoken. And so, so here's, here's a thought for you. If Jesus and his Holy Spirit don't have the words to speak in the midst of our suffering, what makes you think, dear Christian, that you have the right combination of words to speak in the midst of someone's suffering? Maybe the best thing that we can do as someone is suffering is to simply suffer with them. Maybe that's the best thing we can do. You know, a lot of hospitals and nursing homes are inviting a lot of service animals into their facilities because they realize something about service animals. Unlike humans, dogs don't talk. They just sit with the person who may be lonely or isolated or in a tough spot. You see, dogs, they can identify with pain, but they don't try to fill the pain with words. Maybe there's something that we can learn from Jesus and from the Holy Spirit and maybe even service animals too that we can just sit with those who mourn as well. See, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says this, we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our pain, but we have one who was tempted in every single way just as we are. Jesus stoops down and enters into our suffering. With that, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28. That verse that I just alluded to, one of these verses that we try to use to uh, kind of fill the gap in someone's suffering. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Uh, Truth be told, verse 28 
it's kind of like one of those theme passages. Maybe aside from John 3.16, you see this passage all over the place. It's on mugs, it's on t-shirts, it's on walls, it's on the back of cars. We put this passage everywhere. But one of the concerns I often have when I see Romans 8.28 in abstraction is that there's no context to that passage. One of these beautifully rich passages that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, which includes our suffering. But here's the question we always have to ask ourselves. What is the good? Have you ever asked that question before? What's the good? And I think without verse 29, we create our own definition of what the good may be. We might say the good, scripturally speaking, is my own health, wealth, and happiness. All these things will be given to me because God, he's after my good. But here's what verse 29 says. He says, since the dawn of time, from the very beginning of the world, one of these fourth dimensional truths that is so hard for us to understand, this side of eternity, that before time began, God predestined us. Why? So that we might be conformed to the image of the Son. So, what is the good, scripturally speaking? Here's the answer to that question. The good is this, for you to look and act like Jesus. That's the good. You see, we tend to think that the good might be my own health, my own wealth, my own happiness, my own contentment, all these kinds of things. And and that's not the promise of scripture. The promise of scripture is always that God will help you conform to the image of the Son. So here's the first hard truth on suffering that that I want us to be able to see according to scripture. It is this. Jesus suffered death so that you in your suffering could become more like him. He suffered so that you in your suffering could become more like Jesus, that we might be conformed to the image of the Son. Now here's how we might misconstrue this. Give you a couple examples. If our business goes belly up and we believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, then you might start thinking, well, actually, there's an even better and more successful business right around the corner. You lose your job, don't you worry. There's an even better and more well-paying job for you right around the corner. Or you lose your health, or you develop a terminal illness. Don't worry, this is just a test. There's better health for you on the other side. Listen, maybe not. Maybe not. The promise of Scripture is this. If you lose your job, and you are faithful to suffer well, then God will use that circumstance, as difficult as it is, to help you conform into the image of Jesus to help you grow in what we refer to as progressive sanctification, that we can look and act more like Jesus. That's the only promise of Scripture. The promise isn't you're gonna get more health or more wealth or more happiness or anything else like that. The only promise is in the midst of your suffering, Jesus will meet you there and he will help you grow into his likeness. I think, for example, of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, therefore, we also, help me out, what's the word? What's the word? Rejoice in our sufferings. Really? Really? Why would we do that? Paul says, because suffering produces perseverance. 
And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And the hope that we have in Jesus does not disappoint. And hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is a sure and certain knowledge that Jesus Christ will come again and he will make all things new. We will have a greater assurance of that, a greater knowledge of that in the midst of our suffering. See, my fear is in certain circles we have murdered this passage. Maybe aside from Jeremiah 31, you can look at that later, this is one of the passages that that we have obvious, in many ways, have really gone down the wrong path with. And here's how this might work. We start by believing in something the Bible doesn't say. And then we start sharing with others something the Bible doesn't say. And then when, not if, uh, uh, it doesn't happen that way in our life, here's what happens. We start to lose faith in a faithful God on the basis of something God never said. We start to lose faith in a faithful God on, on the basis of something he never said at all. God's never said you won't have suffering in this life. He said you will have suffering. And yet we have created this this false reality that we really need to die to. So right on the heels of that, here's something we need to know about the character of God. God does not author suffering. I'll say that again. God does not author suffering, but he refuses to waste it. God doesn't author evil, and he will not stop until he makes all things new. That's the promise of God. Those, in a nutshell, that's what Paul is getting at at Romans 8. Is God the author of evil? No, he is not. Let me just remind you of a a few passages of Scripture which highlight this. Genesis 1.31, when God finished his creation, he saw everything and he declared it very good. James chapter 1 verse 13 God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone 1 John 1 verse 5 God is light in him there is no darkness at all he is not the author of evil but he will refuse to waste it and he will not stop until he makes all things new and he will use those circumstances to help us grow in Christ likeness The third point, the hard truth on suffering is this. God's ways are not my ways. His ways are not my ways. Let me read a passage of scripture to you. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Take note of the context, the verses. You can look at the context later. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And if we could just have a greater understanding of this principle, I think this would really help us in our journey of faith, especially when we encounter a crossroads in our life. But unfortunately, as I've said to you before, I think oftentimes... We treat God as though he is an infinitely powerful version of me. He loves what I love. He hates what I hate. His definition of mercy is equal to mine. His definition of justice is equal to mine. And then, like I said to you before, when things happen in your life that you don't like or you don't understand, you might start to lose faith in a faithful God. 
fourth point is this. You and God have a very different definition of what ultimate is. We have different definitions. You see, even for those of us who are Christians and and are growing in this understanding of the hope of glory that one day Jesus will return and that we will live in eternity with him and the life on earth is like a drop in the bucket in comparison to what is waiting for us, we still have only scratched the surface on what this truly means and, and how it might affect our life. So, so many of us, we might have this idea that like, the, our concept of a good life might be something like this. If my kids are happy and healthy, money is in the bank account, the house is in good order, I have good family and good friends, then that is a good life. And Paul says, your view is so narrow in scope. You don't have in mind the things of eternity. You're only thinking about the here and now. I think, for example, of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says this, For me, to live is Christ. What he means by that is to suffer with Christ in the same way that Christ suffered. If I stay in this world, I'm going to live as Christ. But to die, he says, is gain. Why would it be gain? If I'm going to go on living in the body, then sure, it'll mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but I think what will end up happening is I'm going to stay on this earth and it will mean fruitful labor for you and for me. See, here is a man who longs to be in glory with God. It is far better for us to simply be done with this life and to join God in his heavenly courts where there is no more crying, no more death, no more pain, and yet he has the perspective to see that God is not done here yet. And so I choose to stay and I choose to suffer in the midst of it. Number five, I am not a qualified judge of good or fair. I'm not a qualified judge of good or fair. You think of the context of Romans chapter 8, and if we had more time, we could read the entire chapter, but the first half uh, is where the Apostle Paul highlights for us our adoption as children of God. Interestingly enough, that was the passage of Scripture that I read to you on my candidacy Sunday before I became your pastor. And now we're reading the second half. So the context is that we are all children of God. We have been grafted into a new inheritance. We have been able to put on righteousness, not on account of ourselves, but on account of what Christ has done on our behalf. That's been credited to us. So the line of questioning can go a little bit like this. What did I deserve? I deserved death and hell. What did I get? Life eternal. How did I get that? through Jesus Christ. Why? Sheer grace. And we look at that and we say, yeah, that that sounds about right. That sounds good. And then right on the heels of that, we get to the suffering and we say, God, I didn't sign up for that. I don't want to have the suffering in my life. So I believe in God. I just don't think he's fair. But we're not a qualified judge of what is good or what is fair Listen, this is not to undermine our perspective in our suffering, but to help give us a renewed perspective in the midst of it. Look again with me to Romans chapter 8. We're now at verse 33. Verse 33 to 39. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It's God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also now interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those are the promises of God. And once again, this incredible passage is supposed to be read in the context of our suffering as a reminder that God is always with us. He will always draw near to us in the midst of our suffering. So before we close, I want to give you two anchors in the midst of your suffering. One is to look back and look behind to the cross. Look behind to the cross. Look again at verse 31. Here's what it says. What then? Shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, the promise of God is not in this life, you will not encounter trouble, you'll never break a bone, you'll never die. The promise in this life is that God will always be with you in the midst of it. When you endure suffering, God says, do not be afraid. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will care for you in such a way that I will suffer with you. I think of God's words in Isaiah 43 when he says, I am going to be with you in your afflictions. And it's not until the cross of Jesus do we realize just how far God is willing to go in order to keep that promise. So at least for me, in those moments when when I am enduring suffering, when I am wondering why, asking God why, I'm reminded of the cross. And I, I realize something absolutely amazing. On the cross, Christ asked exactly the same question. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, why, God, why? Why have you forsaken me? The creator of the universe, the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, also asked that question. And now in glory, he has the perspective to see why. And it's a source of comfort for me in knowing that Jesus asked exactly the same question. And then we not only look back, but we also look ahead to glory. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. So to address the problem of evil, you have to look behind to the cross not only, but you have to look ahead to glory, and and that's verse 37 to 39. Let me just read it one more time for you. 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And you could picture the Apostle Paul sitting with people in the original context saying, do you know what this means? Do you know what the promise of the resurrection means? It's not just about Christ's resurrection. It's your resurrection. This is, a, this is a reminder that we give you at every baptism. In the same way that Christ was buried, so too our sins are done away with. Our old life has been buried and we ought to consider ourselves having died to it. And in the same way that Jesus Christ rose again victorious from the grave, so too we have been resurrected with Jesus. We have a new life, a new identity on account of what Christ has done for us. So you can picture Paul, he's sitting down with with a group of people and the first person comes forward and, and it's a woman whose body has been riddled with cancer. She comes up to Paul and she says, Do my tumors separate me from the love of God? Paul says, no. A man in a wheelchair, he comes up to Paul and he says, does my disability separate me from the love of God? Paul says, no. A just widowed woman who senses the reality of death so keenly that her whole body aches And she has a quiver in her lip and she says, does my husband's death separate me or him from the love of Christ? Paul says no. A woman with an addiction comes up to Paul with her hands in her face filled with shame and she says, do my past mistakes separate me from the love of Christ? Paul says no. And at this point in time, Paul says, listen, everybody, come close, please. I want you to know something, that there is absolutely nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. The words of God are this, nothing will take you out of the palm of my hand. That is the promise of God in the midst of our suffering. Would you pray with me? God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. We thank you for your son Jesus who stooped down and took on flesh and dwelt among us, who endured the cross, scorning its shame, who knows all suffering, and even as we suffer now, possibly today, you draw near to us, you abide with us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would comfort those who sorrow, that you would draw near to us, And that as your church, we would draw near to one another, that we would carry one another's burdens, that we would consider it to be 
a rich blessing and an opportunity to function that way as the body of Christ. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to do so well. Help us to be faithful, to suffer well with one another. And we know, Lord, that there will come a day in which you come back again and we wait in eager anticipation for that day. And until then, we cry out together, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.